During the American Revolution and the founding of America, uh, the military at that time came up with a sort of plan or a philosophy, and that is, is that they would pay people in a uniform way who served in the armed forces, meaning that the only differentiation in pay had to do with whatever rank you were. Different ranks did get different pay, but it was a uniform pay scale across the board. That's continued on to this day in the 200 plus years since the American Revolution that the US military pays equally across the board with two exceptions. The first exception was introduced in 1886 and that was incentive pay. And what the US government and the US military realized is that there's certain jobs that nobody really wants and there's certain areas that people aren't really that motivated to serve in. And so incentive pay was designed to encourage people that, hey, look, uh, come and work in this area or come and serve in that area. Incentive pay is also used for certain positions where people are like, well, we need unique qualifications and the market won't bear us simply paying them what is the uniform rate. And so uh, the U.S. military is allowed to pay incentive pay to get people into certain positions who otherwise on the open market would command too great a salary uh, because of their unique abilities or experiences or education or whatever that may be. There's a second exception to the sort of universal pay scale that the military uses. And this is not incentive pay. This was introduced in World War II, and it's called combat pay. It was originally called badge pay, and it's something different. Incentive pay is meant to incentivize somebody to agree to do something. Badge pay or combat pay is meant to reward somebody for something they've already done. And the way combat pay works is during World War II, it became obvious that there were certain people who were bearing the brunt of the war in danger in combat more than others, and so the U.S. military sanctioned paying them as a reward for what they went through. And so badge pay turned into combat pay, and combat pay still exists today, which is rewarding people who are, end up serving in places where their lives are in danger or where there is great risk. Now, you probably didn't come here this morning for a military history on pay. Why are we talking about this? Well, last week we looked at a parable, and the parable was about how Jesus invited people into his vineyard, and he pays everybody the same rate, one denarius, the gift of eternal life. And I made the point last week that God is not a capitalist. God is not sort of making decisions on the basis of what the free market economy says someone should do. But in the same way God is not a capitalist, God is also not a communist. Meaning that God is not blind to the fact that different people serve in different areas and that they're in the serving in the kingdom of God, that some people are bearing the burden of serving in God's kingdom more than others. And in the same way that the U.S. military has a philosophy of uniform pay across the board, but having done that also has a provision for giving reward or honor or blessing to those who uniquely bear the burden of being in combat. 
So too in God's kingdom, while it is true that each and every person who believes in Jesus receives from him the exact same gift of eternal life, somebody doesn't get more eternal life than another person. While that is still true, God is not ignoring the fact that some end up serving in areas or in ways that need to be, must be, ought to be rewarded and acknowledged. And interestingly, the way Matthew's gospel is set up is the story of the rich young ruler, which we looked at two weeks ago, and the parable of the vineyard, which we worked at, looked at last week, has left us with some simmering questions underneath the surface. In the story of the rich young ruler, Peter says, well, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're going to sit on the 12 tr thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. His 12 disciples have this position coming in the kingdom, which begs the question, do other people get to sit on other thrones? Will there be other acknowledgments of that kind of honor or reward in the kingdom of God, both here and in the future? Also in Matthew 19 and Matthew 20, twice Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. That statement is meant to turn sort of like social expectations on their head. But Jesus doesn't say there won't be any more firsts or any more lasts. In fact, the blessing of the last is, is that you get to be first. How does that work? Where does first come when you're thinking about well, don't we all receive eternal life? And then there, of course, is the question from the vineyard parable last week. We said if you come at 6 a.m. or at 9 a.m. or at noon or at 3 p.m. or at 5 p.m., everybody gets paid the same, which is absolutely true. But that does raise the question, is there no benefit to being one who says yes at 6 a.m.? or at 9 a.m., or at noon, or even at 5 p.m.? Is there no benefit to coming in and saying, okay, how do I make up for lost time? Well, these are the questions that I believe God wants to answer this morning. And so let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew, chapter 20, it's page 801. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're just so glad that you're here. You might have one on your phone, uh, you might not. If not, there's one in the rack in front of you. It looks like this. It's page 801 in these church Bibles, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at a longer section, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. And as we do, the way there's kind of three sections here. The middle section is kind of the key section. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the middle section because that helps us answer our question and think about, well, how does this work even though everybody receives exactly the same thing of eternal life, which is, so, which is true? How does God engage in something like combat pay in recognizing that there are those who are serving in the kingdom of God who serve in sort of unique ways. The middle section helps us to think about that. And then we'll start there and then we'll address the two out, the first section and the third section as they relate to the one in the middle. 
So let's start in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down asked to favor him. So there are 12 apostles. Two of them, named James and John, are brothers, and they are the sons of Zebedee. Their mom comes to Jesus and asks a question. He says, what is it you want? Jesus asks her. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. See, Jesus has recognized this isn't really mom's request. This is the boy's request, and they kind of put mom up to it. So mom asked the question, but Jesus knows that James and John are the two who want to sit at the right and the left. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? They can't, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Now, you might have expected Jesus, when he hears this question, hey, can one child sit at one hand, another child sit at another? You might have expected Jesus to say, were you not paying attention? We just got done with the fact that everybody gets, there's no right and there's no left. Everybody gets the same thing. It's a denarius. Everybody receives eternal life. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, there is a position at my right and there is a position at my left. It's just not me who gets to assign those. My Father in heaven assigns those positions. You see, when you think about sitting at Jesus' right hand or sitting at Jesus' left hand, this is a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 20 when Saul was the king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, it doesn't say it in our scripture passage, but Josephus, who's an early commentator at the time of Jesus, he talks about the fact that in that passage, Jonathan, who is Saul's son, is seated to Saul's right, and Abner, who is the commander of the armed forces, is seated to Saul's left. And the two of them have this position of honor at the king's table. David at the time, who happens to be the captain of Saul's guard, is also seated at the table, but not at the right or at the left. He has a different position. And so this idea that whoever is seated to the king's right, in this case it's Jonathan, who is his son, and whoever is seated to the king's left, in this case it's Abner, the commander of all the armed forces, these are the two positions with the most honor, the sort of most prestige, the most influence in the kingdom, and that everybody else is seated around the king's table in sort of order of prominence. This was true not only in Saul's kingdom, but also in Solomon's. When the queen of Sheba shows up, she notices that Solomon has seated all of the officials in the right sort of way or in a way that gives honor to those to whom honor is due. And so in our passage, these two boys come and say, hey, can I sit next to you on your right? And can I sit next to you on your left? They're asking Jesus, as you come into your kingdom, can we have positions of influence and honor, positions of reward and acknowledgement, positions of greatness in the kingdom of God? 
And again, Jesus doesn't say, did you not listen to the parable? Everybody gets the exact same thing. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is, is within the exact same gift of eternal life, there is somebody who's going to sit at his right and somebody who's going to sit at his left. It's just not for Jesus to decide that. It's for God the Father to decide that. This fits with other passages of Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Paul is essentially saying about Stephanus that he's a kind of 6 a.m. worker. That when the gospel first got to the region, Stephanus and his household were some of the, they were the first people who heard and responded. And as a result, while they get the same gift of eternal life that everybody else who responds gets, because Stephanus was willing to accept and has been laboring in God's kingdom, Paul says to the people at Corinth, hey, they deserve a position of honor. They deserve for you to submit to them and to their leadership. Likewise, Galatians chapter 2. says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now James, Cephas, and John. Cephas, we know, that's Peter's other name. We're well familiar with Peter from the Gospel of Matthew. James and John. James, you might think, is the James from our story, because his name is James, but it's not. This is a different James. This is Jesus' half-brother, James. But the John here is John, the son of Zebedee the same John that we have in Matthew 20, the same one who's coming and saying, can I have a position of honor and influence in the kingdom? Well, here by the time we get to Galatians 2, Paul is acknowledging that John is a pillar in the church, that he has a unique position, a position of honor and reward for his sacrifices and services. And so Paul is submitting to James and to Cephas and to John, the son of Zebedee. Now, this is not only true in the church, the kingdom of God in this era, it's also true when Jesus returns according to Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus tells another parable, and it's about a king who's going to go away and get his uh, crown. And while he's gone, he leaves his servants with stuff to invest for him. And in that parable, each servant is given a mina which is a coin. They're given a certain amount of money. And all 10 servants are given the exact same amount. Everybody gets one mina. And the mina represents your life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every person who's a Christian has been given life and the Holy Spirit. Well, in the story, the king goes away for some time and the people are supposed to take their life and the power of the spirit and do something to bear fruit for the kingdom. The king returns and he calls the first servant in and says, what did you do with the money I entrusted to you? What did you do with the life and the spirit that I gave to you? 
When the servant comes in, he says, I took what you gave me, and I worked hard, and I invested it, and your one mina has become ten more. And the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. Take charge of ten cities. Because the king is coming back to set up a kingdom. And so this guy who's been faithful during this life, he gets to be in charge of ten cities in the kingdom. The second guy comes forward, and the king says, what would you do with the, the life and the Holy Spirit I gave to you? And the man says, I, I tried to put them to use, and, and I've earned five more. So my one mina has become five more. And the king says, take charge of five cities, not Ten cities, but five cities. A proportional reward for his service. A third person comes forward. The king calls him and says, what did you do with the life I gave you? What did you do with the Holy Spirit I entrusted to you? And the man says, I didn't do anything with it. Like I just, I kind of was busy doing my own thing and I didn't do anything for your kingdom. And Jesus says, that guy still gets eternal life. Like he's still given eternal life. But Jesus says, you get to come into the kingdom, but you're not in charge of any cities. And so even when Jesus returns, there is this idea that while each and every person gets the gift of eternal life equally, that there is some acknowledgement of combat pay. The different people engaged in different ways in serving in God's kingdom, and Jesus is not blind to that. And that during this life and when he returns, there'll be an acknowledgement you take charge of 10 cities, you take charge of five cities, you get in, but there's no cities for you to be in charge of. So while it is true that anybody who believes in Jesus receives from him the same gift of eternal life, whether you come with the very last breath you take in life, we all receive the same gift. Within this uniform scale, there is still an acknowledgement that some people are bearing the brunt of the battle more than others. And God is not unfair to ignore that. Which raises the question, on what basis does God give those rewards? On what basis does God start paying combat pay? We'll keep going in our passage, verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, remember there's 12 of them, Two of them get their mom to go ask Jesus. The other 10 immediately know what's happened. They're not super happy about this. They were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the world's eyes, what makes somebody great in this world, what causes someone to be first in this world, is intelligence. Popularity, beauty, athletic ability, acting skills, money, influence, certain racial backgrounds, 
The world is looking at outward things and as a result is declaring some people to be great and other people to be not great. Some people are being treated with honor and other people are not being treated with honor. And the world looks at external abilities, external kinds of things, and on that basis is making decisions as to who is great and who is not. And Jesus says, it's not that in my kingdom there's no greatness. It's not that in my kingdom nobody comes first. It's just in my kingdom we don't use that kind of criteria. We're not making decisions as who sits to the right and who sits to the left, who's in charge of 10 cities. We're not using the criteria that the world uses. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter how well-spoken you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are, how popular you are. Those have nothing to do with combat pay in the kingdom of God, nothing. What is the thing that God rewards is service and sacrifice. Whoever wants to be great, not there's no greatness. Whoever wants to be great in God's kingdom, whoever wants to experience reward, whoever wants to experience blessing and honor in the kingdom of God now and in the future, that goes to those who serve and sacrifice. Jesus says, just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're not all equal in the kingdom of God. There is one for sure who has the position of honor. There is one for sure who is seated on David's throne. And who is that person? Jesus. How did he get there? Not on the basis of looks or money or influence. He had none of those things. Isaiah says there was nothing about Jesus that would attract anybody to him. He's not the most popular kid in school. He's not the best athlete. He is not the person who you're going to look at and go, there's going to be the most successful person. Isaiah says Jesus had none of the things that the world would look at and say that would make somebody great. What did make Jesus great? As he chose to serve and to sacrifice. That's how the first section that we skipped over fits with this one. So go back to verses 17 to 19 and listen to what Jesus tells the 12 disciples right before they have their debate about who's greatest in the kingdom. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Because Jesus did this, Philippians says, God gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then follow in my footsteps. 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service and sacrifice are the defining features for which God pays combat pay. Everybody gets eternal life. There's no more eternal life for one person than for another. But in this uniform pay scale, God is not unjust. He recognizes that some are bearing the burden of the kingdom of God more than others, and they receive combat pay. And the basis of the combat pay is how much did you act like Jesus? How much did we follow him in service and in sacrifice. You see, it's interesting that these two brothers come and through their mom ask for one to sit on Jesus' right and the other to sit on Jesus' left. It's interesting because the next time in Matthew's gospel where we hear of a person being on Jesus' right and a person being on Jesus' left is in Matthew 27 when Jesus is hanging on a cross and one person is dying on his right and the other is dying on his left. That's what the confusing language about cup means. Can you drink from this cup? Jesus is saying, can you follow me in suffering, service, and sacrifice? And the boys pipe up, oh yes we can. And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking for? He says, you will. But that's the key to greatness. The reason why the James that's here, the son of Zebedee, is not the James in Galatians 2 is because this James, the son of Zebedee, is killed for being a Christian. In the book of Acts, in between Matthew 20 and Galatians 2, this James, the son of Zebedee, is going to drink from that cup and he's going to lose his life. But the promise of Jesus to James is that that sacrifice will not be ignored by God. That God will give to James, I don't know, some honor, some form of recognition, some benefit, some combat pay for his willingness to follow Jesus in service and in suffering. So while it is true, and thank the Lord that it is, that it does not matter what time you come into the kingdom of God, at the very last breath, if you accept, you receive from God the same gift that everyone else receives, which is eternal life. While that is true, it is also true that those who labor, those who serve, those who sacrifice, those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, receive from Jesus within that gift of eternal life. Honor greatness, blessing, reward. So what does that mean for us today? Well, this is where the third section in our passage comes in. Verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. 
And what I'm about to read to you is the phrase that I would love to have stick in your mind. If you get nothing else out of this morning, this is the summary of what we're trying to say. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Wait a minute. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the ruler over all things. These two guys should be asking Jesus, what can we do for you? And what is Jesus asking them? How can I serve you? The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus could have shown up on this earth and demanded that these two blind guys and everybody in this room and everybody who's ever lived do what he wants done and serve him. That is not what he did. What did he do? He saw these two men. And he basically said, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? John F. Kennedy in his inaugural presidential address said this very famous statement. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not show up here to ask what we could do for him. He came because of what he might do for us. That right there is the key to greatness in the kingdom of God. That right there is how the last become first. And whether you're joining the vineyard at 5 p.m. or you've been in since 6 a.m., the attitude of how can I serve you, that's the attitude that gets combat pay. That's the attitude that is rewarded. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is I'd like to just walk through just a couple of scenarios for you to think about how you and I might put this into practice in sort of everyday life. So you can close your Bibles if you want. Just want you to think this through uh, with me. We'll start with sort of church and our involvement or engagement here in church. To paraphrase JFK's statement, the attitude that God rewards is the attitude that says, ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. Meaning, you might come to Calvary and you might think, hey, you know what? I love working with this kind of group or I have this kind of background or this is my position in the world and I'd love to be involved doing these kinds of things. And when I get to serve in this area, I really feel rewarded by that. That is a blessing. We would love to try to plug you in in that area. But the attitude that Jesus really rewards is the attitude that shows up and says, where do you need me to serve? What do you need done? And whether or not it fits with all the things I love doing, what does this church need me to do because I'm here to serve? That's the attitude of Jesus. What do you want me to do? Or think about worship, what we're gathered here this morning doing. Maybe you came here this morning and you thought, what can I receive from God and others in worship? And that's a good thing. There is stuff to be received here. Jesus wants you to be here to bless you. We're here to bless you. That is beautiful. 
But there's also an attitude that says, I came here this morning because of what I can give God and what I can give to others. That's the attitude that makes one great in the kingdom of God. If you're here thinking, you know what? I don't actually like that song we just sang. But I would like to sing it because the person next to me really seems to be engaging. Maybe after the service, you think to yourself, well, there's a person that I don't know. I could go up to them and say, hey, you want to have, have a cup of coffee in the gathering place? You want to sit down and talk for a minute? Now, I know your fear, fame fear I have, is I'm going to come up and say, are you new here? And they're going to have been here for like 50 years. <laughs> but you know the attitude that Jesus rewards? Maybe that person who's been here for 50 years needs to have a cup of coffee with you. And the only way to get there is for you to ask, hey, look, are you new here? I don't know you. That's the attitude that Jesus rewards. It's the attitude that says, you know what? If I'm embarrassed, if this person has been the most influential person in the church or they've been the chairman of the elders like 10 times, if I should, if I should have known them, if they're up on the platform and I don't know them, it doesn't matter if I'm embarrassed. They might need me to do this. How can I serve them? That's the attitude that makes somebody great in the kingdom of God. It's the attitude that looks around and says, hey, look, Maybe you come from a different racial background. Maybe you're not part of the dominant culture. Maybe at Calvary Church, there's, well, there's a lot of white-looking people here. Maybe this has been a harder journey for you. The attitude that Jesus rewards says, how can I or we, this church, serve you? Not how can you become like us. How can you do things the way we want you to do them? When it comes to giving... Of course, it's a beautiful thing if you're like, hey, look, why don't you tell me the kind of projects that the church is working on and I can see if any of those kind of hit my fancy and I'd love to give money to help those things. I mean, who doesn't love to give money to something that's a beautiful thing? But the attitude that Jesus rewards is the attitude that says, here are my gifts and offerings. You do with them whatever God tells you to do with them. Use them for whatever it is God wants you to use them for. Or think about your school. You may think to yourself, these teachers are here to serve me. True. But Jesus says you're there to serve them. You may be thinking, what can my classmates do for me? Why are they treating me this way? Don't they know that I want this? Or can't they understand that I need this? All of that is very understandable. But the attitude that Jesus responds to, the attitude that he blesses is, how can I serve my teacher? Yes, students can serve their teachers. It's crazy. I can serve my classmates. Even the popular kids. The athletes. The bullies. The drama kids. The attitude that Jesus blesses is the student who walks into school and says, I'm not here to be served, but to serve. God, show me who I can serve today. And the kids sit by themselves at the lunchroom table that nobody's sitting with. And you go and sit with them and everybody laughs. Just wait. So Jesus starts handing out rewards for what you're doing. Or at work. 
Maybe you're thinking, how can my boss serve me and help me to get promoted and kind of move through the company? How can the people around me help me get my project done? How, when I go down to quality assurance, can I get the person to do what I need to do and sign off on this so I can get credit for doing this? Again, being a hard work, good stuff. But the attitude that Jesus rewards is the attitude that says, how do I help other people get their projects done? How do I make sure other people get credit for the things that they're doing? How do I help my boss or my coworkers or the people that work for me? How do I help them accomplish their goals? And you think, well, if I do that, I won't end up where I... Yes, in this world you won't. But in the kingdom of God you will. Or in your family. You might think, how are my parents here to serve me? When Jesus says, what you should ask is how you're here to serve your parents. Kids serving parents? I know, crazy. Instead of just simply doing the chores you're asked to do, you could actually come up with your own chores to do to serve your parents. Parents, to be able to serve children, to be like, yeah, no, they're not here to, for us to live out sort of our wish fulfillment about sports or about academics or those sorts of things. They're not here to provide us with stories to tell our friends. How do we serve them in their needs? Not how do we use them to get stuff done that we want to get done. For siblings, for friends, this is the attitude. Instead of, well, my sibling drives me up the wall. I bet she does. I bet he does. But the attitude of Jesus was... What can I do to serve even my enemies, including siblings and frenemies? In every area of life, this is the thing. If you want to know what makes somebody great in the kingdom of God, not what gets them into the kingdom of God, what gets you into the kingdom of God is simply by faith accepting the gift of eternal life. No questions asked. But what makes you great in the kingdom of God? What causes you to be rewarded in the kingdom of God? <clears throat> what causes you to have positions of honor and influence in the kingdom of God? What causes you to have positions for eternity or for at least for the millennial kingdom in the kingdom of God? is the same attitude of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you and I go through our lives and think about church, family, school, work, neighborhood, country, engagement, relationships, community, with the attitude of what can I do for you? How can I serve you? Jesus says, you will be blessed. Let's pray together. Lord, it is so counterintuitive. Help us to follow your example, Jesus. Thank you for the blessing of serving others. Forgive us, Lord, for always wanting to put ourselves first. Jesus, would you create space for us today opportunities for us to think through how we might serve others, 
Remind us, Jesus, that when you chose to serve others, it cost you greatly. But help us to see how you've been rewarded and the blessings that will come when we follow in your footsteps. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life given equally to all. And thank you for the blessings and the rewards that come to those who choose to serve. We pray this in your name, Jesus.